So with that, let me um, turn our attention to God's Word. We are continuing our series in the book of Luke this morning, looking at Jesus calming the storm. And so I'm going to read Luke 8, starting at verse 22. I invite you to read with me. So this is referring to Jesus. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you are speaking to your people. Thank you that you know us. You know the condition of our lives, the condition of our hearts. You know the things that give us life and the things that cause us to be afraid. And we pray now, God, that you would make Jesus more real in our lives as we give our attention to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, before I jump into the sermon, I, I do kind of want to ask a little bit for an, maybe an extra helping of grace this morning. Um, if I seem a little bit out of it, uh, it's because I actually about, gosh, a little over two hours ago got... Uh, some really bad news. Um, a, a dear friend of mine, um, his name's Kirk Adkison, I found out, uh, passed away last night. And um, Kirk is a, a big, he and his wife, Deb, um, are a really big reason why the table exists. Uh, Kirk started the church, uh, All Souls Church in Boulder, um, and his, it was very much through... Um, seeing this place through he and his wife's eyes uh, that caused us to fall in love with Boulder County. And so he uh, finished his final round of chemo for lymphoma about a week ago and was in the clear, but was having some difficulty breathing. And it turns out he had um, a staph infection in his blood that had gotten in there somehow. And... Um, yeah, passed away last night, and so um, literally found out this morning. Uh, so, yeah. So thank you in advance. Um, he's, I think, going to find his way in this sermon anyway. So Bryce read this passage, um, and I want to, I want to kind of just try to put some context around this because. It's easy to just kind of read this, and it's, it's one that a lot of people who, if you've grown up in church at all, you've, you're much more familiar with. But it's, it's important to remember that the disciples that were with Jesus, when this storm comes up, like, it's like half of them were fishermen anyway. And they're used to traveling on this, uh, this body of water in particular, this specific one. So they were, they were familiar with it. This wasn't like something they'd never done before in a place they'd never been before. They were competent and equipped, 
And this storm, for it to, I think the technical in the Greek term for it is uh, freak them out, uh, to this degree, would have had to have been something truly incredible and different. And at this point, they just couldn't bail themselves out fast enough. We see in the way that Jesus responds to them a kindness that is more than just niceness. Because a kindness without any kind of power is just nice. It's nice. It's, it's maybe even sentimental. It's a, it's a Hallmark card, right? But kindness with the ability, not just the, the affection to love, but the ability and then the follow-through to love in, in not just word, but also in deed, that is a, that is a powerful kindness. And it one right after another, actually, in the next, over the next three weeks, we see this kind of little mini-sermon uh, mini series where Jesus is shown to have a powerful kindness through his power over creation, that's this week, over demons, that's next week, so that'll be fun, uh, and then over death itself. And so, in this passage, there are, there are two questions that are asked that kind of helped to, to pull out not just Jesus' powerful kindness, but also maybe the things and the ways that we allow fear to get in the way of our experiencing of his kindness. And so the first question, I'm going I'm to kind of show you a little bit of something here, but it's, it's basically, don't you care if we drown? Now, it's helpful to know that, that all three of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, not John. John is also a gospel, but it's, it's, it's different in, uh, in aim and purpose. It's writing for a different occasion. They all cover this, this very event. In Luke, the, mass, uh, the uh, disciples are, are said to have said, Master, Master, we are perishing, which we just read, right? In Matthew, it says, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. But I love Mark. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, they're all saying the same thing, but Mark's just a little bit more honest, right? And I, I just, I love the, the honesty of that. It's something that we, we're separated by 2,000 years, a lot of culture, technology, everything else, and yet, Jesus, don't you care if we're drowning and perishing? It's something we can really empathize with. We've all been in the place where everything was wrong. We felt like we were sinking. It seemed like God was either asleep, absent, or unaware of what we are going through. We think to ourselves, if he loved us, he would not let us go through this. He would not let us sink. He would not allow us to be exposed to risk and danger. <laughs> I want to ask you to raise your hand, but it actually struck me. I feel like... We could, we could respond in one of two ways to the pandemic as described by that, right? We can either not say it as much because you're like, I actually know what real like, risk feels like now. And maybe I say, I wonder, Jesus, do you care if I drown far less than I used to? Or you may be thinking about it all of the time because it's still going. <laughs> it begs the question, why do we ask this? Why do we doubt that God cares if we're drowning or not? I want to affirm that it's valid 
to, if, that you ask this, right? Like this, this, is, this is a natural human inclination and doubt. If we, if we see the love of Jesus as we have been talking about the goodness of God and the kindness of Christ in the gospel of Luke so far, then why is the world the way it is? It's valid. But as I was like trying to think through this, I feel like there are, there are three pretty significant assumptions that, that, that this, that Mark's honesty but all of the gospel's cataloging of this event kind of helps reflect back to us and helps us maybe, gives us the occasion to see and to ask the question a little bit more slowly and carefully. The first assumption that I think that makes us say this, ask this question is that we assume that if we can't see or conceive of a reason, there must not be one. If we can't fathom or imagine that God might have a good reason for allowing something to happen to us that feels like a storm where we are overwhelmed, that there can't be a reason. It is, it is remarkable to me, actually, because I, I feel like I, I, I fall into this trap all the time, but it's remarkable to me how much faith that requires in our own cognitive abilities and, and omniscience. That if I'm not smart enough to figure it out, well, God doesn't have a good reason. <sighs> the second assumption is, is, is really the panoply of motivations and aspirations of the world that we are kind of bombarded with and are, frankly, easy to just assume that God promises. The American dream in general, but specifically comfort, achievement, progress, owning a home instead of buying a home. I'm so sorry for all of you who are having to look to buy a home right now, right? The reality is none of these things are promised in Scripture. In fact, the Bible promises that life will be defined far more like a storm than the stillness and calmness that Jesus effectuated by speaking it into that state. That's actually what we can expect. That actually is the norm and a fallen world. We're just not used to, I guess another way of saying, whether or not it is as a, res, as a result of your faith, specifically, or if it is just more indirectly related, we're not used to being Christians costing us anything. We're remarkably privileged and comfortable and blessed, and we should have gratitude for that. But that means that we're surprised and unprepared for when the storm does come up. The third assumption is that we assume that a loving God couldn't possibly allow bad things to happen to us. It's not just that God might, might have a reason. It's that it's incompatible with his love and with his very heart. And again, this makes sense. Right? My boys, Ransom and Deacon, I want to protect them. I want them to not know what the brokenness of this world is like until... They absolutely have to. And yet, at the same time, that is terrible preparation for the brokenness of this world. And please don't hear what I'm not saying, that like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, some trite silver lining BS, right? What I'm describing and saying is that like, if I can have hindsight now, where I can see in the past, where God has shown me countless times that the storm I thought was unfathomably, irrationally, and unlovingly visited upon me, I can now see in hindsight, 
man, he was actually preparing me for something else. Imagine when you don't just have hindsight, but you have heaven as your starting point. But what's the alternative? The alternative is Jesus. The alternative is when he says, peace, be still to this storm. The language here is actually, uh, like, it's, it's really hard to describe. It's so strong. It's, it's describing something that in the words being used would have communicated a supernatural event. In other words, like, try to even imagine being on a lake where the wind was so still, there was no breeze, it was, it was completely silent. And the, and, the, and the water itself, the only movement on the water would have been the disciples freaking out and rocking the boat because there was not even a wave or a ripple otherwise. What Jesus is trying to help the disciples not just understand, but also to see and experience, and what he's communicating in that moment is, I know that you don't understand why this is happening. Instead of trying to figure it out and problem solve it, just look at my heart and my character and trust that at the end of the day, I want what is best for you, and I know what's best for you more than you do because if this Jesus is powerful enough to calm a storm, he has to be big enough to have a reason. He has to be big enough and to be powerful enough to love you in the midst of it. And that's what he's getting at with the second question this morning. He says, where is your faith? And again, I want to compare and contrast here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke says, where is your faith? Matthew and Mark say, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And once again, Luke this time instead of Mark is kind of saying out loud what is implied in the other ones. And I think it's honestly, like I just want to clear something up because it's easy to read those, especially Matthew and Mark, and, and think Jesus is being like snarky or something and rebuking them. Like, really? You don't get it still? Why are you so slow? That's not what's happening here. He's using this as a teachable moment to help us understand and, and reflect back to the disciples to help them see and ask themselves the question, what kind of faith, what kind of faith and where are you putting your faith? Because those are very related. What kind of Jesus is asking? Well, I can tell you, it, he, he's not asking about two different kinds of faith that we often think faith in Jesus is, but it's not. The first is this kind of bootstrap faith that says ignore the storm, pretend it's not there, and ignore the fear and the anxiety it's causing it. Just buck up, little camper, and just deal with it. But Jesus, like I said, didn't rebuke them. He doesn't even rebuke them for asking him, don't you care that we're drowning? He actually is inviting them to consider an opposite an exact opposite of blind faith that is, more, that is not this kind of maybe Jesus-flavored stoicism, right? He's also not saying that the faith that the disciples should have or that we should have is this kind of mere empathy that says, I'm so sorry, this, this storm must be really hard. 
that you're still in the midst of this storm. He doesn't like, can you imagine they're like freaking out and trying to bail water? He's just like, guys, this sucks. I'm so sorry. It's like, could you do something about it too? Like, just really empathizing with the disciples today, can you tell? There is this kind of modern therapeutic individualism, which is a very, like, three very long words strung together that says that what doesn't ma- the storm doesn't actually matter, neither does your response to it, but how you feel about it. But the problem with that is, what if the storm isn't external but internal? That's a very uncompromising storm, isn't it? It's a different kind of bootstrap that says that your ability and capacity is limited by the way that you feel, and therefore your faith then is limited by the way that you feel. And that's just not the case. Because if faith is in how we feel about a thing, then we are then at the mercy of our kind of fallen neurobiochemical wetworks and not at the mercy of a kindness of Christ. Jesus cares about your feelings, but he cares about you more, and you are more than your feelings, but it also includes them. Which is a really long way of saying that the right answer here is what he's inviting, both in kind and direction or trajectory of faith, is leaning into love. Leaning into love. Which means we don't ignore the storm, and we also don't let it define us. That because of the kindness of Christ, we can trust in the midst of it. Kirk, um, like I said, he planted all souls. And about 12 years ago now, I think, 11, 12 years ago, we get a message from him out of the blue saying that he is uh, resigning as the pastor of the church because he committed adultery. And he left the church, he stepped down, he confessed, he wasn't found out, he confessed so that he could beg his wife, Deb, to stay with him and to work on himself and to prioritize what he should prioritize. And I remember, um, we were, Mahan and I were living in St. Louis at the time, and uh, Deb happened like to get away for a little bit and get some breathing room, came back to St. Louis and we had lunch with her. And I just remember sitting across the table and just saying, hey, can we get the really dumb question out of the way? How are you doing? <laughs> because we know we got, and we, we're going to ask it. We care about you. We love you. But also, we know, not great, but we need to ask. And we don't know how to do this. How can we be here for you? And she said, and I just, I said, you have to pick, you have to know Deb. She's, um, she's so sweet and has this like, kind of mouse-like voice and a slight southern accent. And she said, the Lord has given me a word. And that word is the F-bomb. <laughs> but she didn't say, quote, the F-bomb. She said the word. And I had never until that point heard a one-word psalm of lament before. But it was holy. And I can't imagine the storm that she was going through. To not just have that happen to you in your marriage, but to 
to have your entire church family know it required of her more than a stoicism. It required of her a lot more than just empathy from Jesus. It required a trust in the midst of the storm. Not one that denied its existence or allowed herself to be controlled by it. And it was 10 years of working on their marriage and they were still married. And they ended up planting another church. And only they could plant a hippie bluegrass church in Boulder and then go and plant a multi-ethnic church in blue-collar Nashville. Like, they're, they're amazing human beings. And the latter, I don't think, could have happened apart from that storm. That doesn't mean God was okay with it or approved of it, but he redeemed it. And there is no storm he can't redeem. If I'm honest, if I stop and reflect if I put myself in the disciples' shoes, how would I react to the anxiety and stress? Well, I mean, I know. I know how I react to metaphorical storms, if not literal ones. And I don't, I actually don't doubt. They don't make me, storms don't make me doubt whether God is there or whether he's good or whether he can do anything about it. I do something that's like, honestly, it's this, it's this BS facade of humility but it's not. It's, I, I turn it on myself. I say, functionally, I don't necessarily explicitly think this, but maybe you can identify with this. I, I beat myself up. I say, functionally, to myself, if I had enough faith, if I had more faith, I'd handle this storm better. If I really believed the gospel, then I wouldn't feel this stress and anxiety. I say to myself, if I prayed more, if I trusted God more, I wouldn't feel like I'm drowning or perishing. And there's a sense that, yeah, if I did have more faith and if I did pray more, I might not feel as much as what I am. But what I'm trying to articulate here is that there's a difference between praying and having faith as an outflow of, of trusting in God's faithfulness and the strength of God's power in his powerful kindness or as an outflow of trust in my own strength and my own faithfulness. And when that is not sufficient to handle the storm, I am crushed by it. I feel I very much identify with um, author Alan Noble, who happened to stumble across this, his, him tweeting this morning. He said, I think I failed to appreciate how essential faith is to moving through this world at all and how stubbornly my will resists faith preferring the illusion of control and certainty. So what do you do with that? Well, it doesn't start with changing your mindset. <laughs> it actually, thank God, starts very differently and more simply than that, by praying. But in a particular way, I love the way that Tim Keller says that when he's talking about this passage, he says, if you want to believe but can't, 
And when he says believe, he's not just saying like believe for the first time. He also means in an ongoing sense, but both apply here. If you want to believe but can't, stop looking inside. Go to Jesus and say, help me believe. Go to him and say, so you're the one who gives faith. I've been trying to work it out by reasoning and thinking and meditating and manifesting and going to church in hopes that a sermon will move me. I've been trying to get faith by myself. Now I see that you're the source of faith. Please give it to me. Does that not feel freeing? Maybe you came in this morning in the midst of your own storm. My hope and prayer is that in hearing that, you know that you can say, Jesus, I actually don't, I can't answer that question. Where is my faith? Because it's not in you. And it might be in a bunch of other things that I'm trying to trust in to find that peace and calm and still in the midst of the storm. And I can't. I'm going to need you to give that to me because I don't know where to find it anywhere else. That's the gospel. And by the way, I want to just kind of, let me also just address the elephant in the room here because um, unless you, uh, like most of you, you've had someone text you to let you know or you read the newsletter that we sent out that, you know, that Boulder County Health Department has, you know, you don't have to wear a mask anymore indoors. The idea, the, the phrase of faith over fear has been used to bludgeon people in a legalistic, pharisaical way. And I want to encourage you and and also challenge you. One, don't hear what I'm not saying. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? But I also want to challenge you to not let misuse allow you to disuse something. Do not discard a faith that does provide calm. Not in a stoic, as if this doesn't exist, it's not a real thing, but in such a way that actually provides the peace that surpasses all understanding in the middle of it without having to pretend it's not a thing. So whether you are here now or you're watching on the live stream, do not hear me say to, you, you should bootstrap your way back to church, but also don't hear me say, let your feelings take the wheel. Right? Jesus takes the... I'm sorry. You were thinking it anyway. And we needed to laugh at that point, right? That was a good time joke. What I'm saying is, it's okay. We can lean into love. That is actually a love that is actually worth the risk of giving anything and everything up. Because it's better than any other love that we can possibly find. It's a powerful kindness. And also, the kind of love that promises to be utterly with you in the midst of the storm and has already conquered anything that you could or should be ultimately afraid of. So let me hit one more point and then we'll do our Q&A here. But this is, this is such good news. Whether we're talking about Matthew, Mark, or Luke, all of them are intentionally writing this in such a way that the reader would be reminded of another 
storm on another boat with another person whose name started with J. And his name is Jonah. And what they're trying to communicate here, all three of the gospel authors, is that Jesus is the true and better Jonah because both of them find themselves in a boat. Both of them fall asleep and are then overtaken by a storm. In fact, the description is almost identical. In both, the sailors, or in this case, the disciples, woke, wake up the sleeper, Jonah or Jesus, and said, we're going to die, we are perishing, don't you care? And in both, there is a miraculous and divine intervention. The sea is calm, the wind is stilled, and the reaction between, of both sailors and disciples is that they're actually more afraid by the display of power. There's exactly one difference. Jonah says in verse 12 of chapter 1, if I die, you live. And he's thrown overboard. Jesus says later in the Gospel of Matthew explicitly, I am the greater Jonah. One day I will calm every storm, I will still every wave, I'll destroy destruction and break brokenness. And he is referring to, in the future tense, his, his crucifixion. And he died where Jonah was just swallowed by a whale. That's why he's the true and better one. He, he actually gave himself up to, over to, the storm. He did not spare himself from the storm of a broken world. He experienced, God himself experienced death itself. And in so doing, he doesn't just save sailors and disciples from a storm of nature or circumstance. He saves us all from the ultimate storm of this life, which is death itself. Death dies because Jesus threw himself overboard. What do we have to fear? We have a couple questions here. <laughs> How do I help someone I love understand that even in their trauma, anger, and pain, God actually cares about and loves them? How do I help someone I love understand that even in their trauma, anger, and pain, God actually cares about and loves them? <sighs> I would say depending on who it is, there's many ways, but at the end of the day, for me, like if I'm that person, here's what I would want, here's what I need the reminder of, is actually, Scripture does not beat around the bush. Scripture does not give a silver lining. Scripture does not say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and Scripture does not say, well, there's a reason for everything. It actually is silent on why God allows bad things to happen. It is silent in terms of why Jesus has not fixed all that is broken in this world fully yet. But what it very clearly communicates and cannot and rules out as possibilities is that on the cross, Jesus was stoic and did that because he's unloving and didn't care. 
The cross tells us what it can't be. It can't be that we have a God who doesn't care and doesn't love. If anything, he crossed heaven and earth. He crossed the threshold between life and death to reach us, and he is with you. And you know what? You can sing over and over again your own one psalm lament, and he's actually okay with that. He wants to hold you and embrace you, and he's with you, and he's given you his church to help you in the midst of that. Okay, so one more question. Sorry that this is not related to the main point of the sermon, but how do we interpret subtle differences between the Gospels, like save us, versus don't you care? If all Scripture is God-breathed, then why are the quotes different? Ah, good question. Um, there, are, there are some like very good academic descriptions, but at the end of the day, it really has to do with when you are recounting an event and telling the story, uh, the precision is not as important. The precision of the wording and the accuracy of it is nowhere near as important as the meaning it conveys. And depending on who you're talking to and what about, um, you might change the wording. And that doesn't mean it didn't happen. That doesn't mean it's not true. For example... My friend Deb did not say the F-bomb. She said the F-bomb. You know what I mean. If I wrote that, and because of the context of this being in a sermon, I'm going to change my language. But if we're talking one-on-one, we're good. I'll say it. It's cool. Because I'm quoting her. It's not me saying it. Anyway. <sighs> Do you see my point there? Okay. The point is the meaning. And we actually have this gift of different perspectives describing the same events to bring out different facets of the same biblical truth that no one perspective could ever give a full account of in its beauty, truth, and goodness. So let me pray and uh, we'll move on to communion. Jesus, It is not an accident that this passage (laughs) was on the calendar for this day. And by that I mean at the same time that things are starting to open up back up and we have to navigate in the midst of culture wars and anxiety and stress and health concerns and fear that you would give us this passage on this day. It is not an accident that we lost a very good man today. And that this is the passage you've had for us. I don't know what those reasons are, Lord, only you do. But I am grateful, God, that you communicate your presence, your goodness, your love, not despite the storm, not under the storm as if it has any power over you or I, but in the midst of it. Lord, bring that comfort to all who have need of it, and that is all of us. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.